Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us today. We're bringing you a great conversation with Dr. Liz Haney, founder of Soil Regen and co-founder of Regen Mills and Heritage Ground. Liz is a soil and ecosystem scientist with experience in regenerative agriculture education, soil health testing and analysis, carbon, and conservation practice modeling. Today, Monty and Liz unpack all of those areas, including soil testing in the regenerative space, carbon, mobile milling, and everything in between. Liz walks us through her journey where she says, in order to solve a lot of the problems we're facing with water quality, climate resilience, healthy food, healthy people, that regenerative agriculture is the way forward. So let's listen in. Welcome to this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast. We're pleased to be joined by Dr. Liz Haney. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Well, it's pretty pretty awesome that uh, we can have um, uh, you on the show here to talk a little bit. We've got lots of things we can go over today. and and But first, we want to start with your why, your story. Why, what makes you who you are and, and what you're all about? Well, I, am, I grew up in the desert in West Texas. So I did not come from an ag background at all. Um, went to school and started working in a soils testing lab. So I found out I really liked it. I went back to school and got my master's in soil science um, and worked within the space. I did a reclamation for surface coal mining for a long time. And then um, while I was in school, met my husband, Rick Haney. And as um, a lot of people know, he developed the Haney Soil Health Test. That's not what it was called at first, but um, got involved with that, helped him through that and helped him with presentations and write papers. And we worked on that for a while, but I didn't really get excited about regenerative agriculture or soil health until I had kids and realized that in order to solve a lot of the problems that everybody is facing with water quality, uh, climate resilience, healthy food, healthy people, that regenerative agriculture is the way forward. And it got me very, very excited about it. And and my heart just exploded into the space after that. So, wow, looking at some of those restorative principles that uh, in a completely desolated area and and kind of applying it to our food system, right? And on a broad scale to, instead of just restoring, uh, making it better than it originally was with regeneration. Pretty neat. Uh, we all have different on-ramps into this regenerative story, don't we? <laughs> yes, we do. Everybody's different. Kind of interesting how we all all wind up in that 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 tribe of people who are fighting for the soil. So, um, <laughs> you mentioned early on you got to work with uh, with Rick there and um, and have now is the soil test named after you or him? We're going to have to ask this here. You know, <laughs> it's named after him. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm an innocent bystander, really. You're just guilty by association. Guilty by association, which has been good. (laughs) So uh, talk to us about those early days and and development. And uh, 
of how how Rick came about that and and your role in contributing to that, how how the soil health test came about about. Okay, he started in graduate school. Um, he was a little later going back to graduate school, but he had worked in Oklahoma with some farmers there and kept seeing them struggle and struggle. Um, helped them out on the farm for many years, starting when he was like eighteen, and um, how they were totally subject to the commodity market and the climate and weather and doing their best, but sometimes couldn't you know couldn't make it that year. Um, sometimes going bankrupt, you know things things didn't always turn out. So he wanted to figure out a way to really help them cut their input costs. So the Haney test started out as a way to identify additional sources of nitrogen that we weren't seeing with soil tests before previously because technology changes over time and we want to keep up with the times. And a lot of the tests that, that everybody was using were from the 60s or earlier even. So he wanted to find those additional sources of nitrogen that he knew were, that were there and started researching that. And so it really started out as a soil fertility test. It wasn't until later that um, I think when he met like Ray Archuleta, things started developing that, that the whole soil health connection really started coming into play. So looking at updating, you know, nitrogen availability or supply by the soil from microbial activity mainly. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, up to this point, we really had the most common uh, form that they were using mainly in the West would be nitrate tests. You know, what's soil nitrate availability, which is good if you don't get a rain. Okay. If you do get a rain, that, that varies a little bit. And uh, the other thing is, is there's some, you know, uh, ammoniacal nitrogen tests, but they were kind of expensive. So a lot of people didn't run those. Mm -hmm. So it was really uh, trying to get a picture of what's going on, right, in the soil as far as uh, all these different pools of microbial activity and how that could convert to crop season nitrogen availability. And That's correct. So, and it was, it was kind of, and it still is today, right? Pretty, pretty interesting, the variance from from place to place and how that varies to the, the older fashioned nitrate tests. Is that? Yes. Um, on, on average, we find that there's at least 20 to 40 pounds of nitrogen available. In addition to that standard nitrate test mm -hmm. um, there, and there is a lot of variability from place to place and climate to climate. And so the test is, desi is designed to accurately reflect the climate and the location that you're in. And not only does it vary from place to place, it varies from time to time. So the soil, it's, it's you know, we've always viewed the soil, at least I was taught in, in school, it's this, you know, you have sand, silt, clay, you have nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, micronutrients, bam, uh, that's all you got. But no, it's a living dynamic system. And, and trying to measure that and accurately reflect what's going to be available through microbial activity in this dynamic system is a difficult thing, but this is the, a really good step forward in that, in that process. Now, will you be able to get a refund on your college tuition? <laughs> I've tried. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I think, you know, it's a, it's a great thing to understand that there's a lot more to, to know out there and, uh, and part of the Haney soil health test is allowing us to budget then for that 20, 40, or maybe even more uh, nitrogen that would be available. And in the past, people didn't get too excited about that, but this year they're probably a little more excited about that at a dollar 10 a unit. Uh, you know, you're looking at 220 to 440 
uh, or I'm, I'm sorry, $22 or $44 an acre that uh, you could be saved uh, by budgeting correctly, let alone all the other uh, benefits that we're going to talk about down the road, right? So I think um, that that's a great, great start. So after the nitrogen estimation, what else has kind of gotten folded into that overall look of the of, of the Haney soil test today? Yeah, the one of the most important things I like to look at is um, the water extractable organic carbon. Mm-hmm. So every time it rains, there's a carbon source that is readily available. And that is what the microbes chew on. So while we measure water extractable organic carbon, we measure the nitrogen separately. We even measure the organic phosphorus separately. They're really all on one molecule together. So the microbes are chewing up that readily available source and we can see, are, do they have enough carbon to grow their population? You know, they um, are mostly carbon-based, right? They, so they, to build their population, there has to be plenty of that carbon available. So it's, it's interesting to see the, even when we look at the total soil organic matter and compare that to the water extractable organic carbon, sometimes the food source isn't there for the microbes, even if you have a really high organic matter soil. So it's important to see the biological activity in there so that we know how much nitrogen is gonna be mineralized over the growing season and how much carbon is available for them to grow their biomass. And generally the healthier the soil, the more organic carbon there is available. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a unique approach, understanding how all three of those interact with each other. You know, we're, we're so used to, oh, a farmer needs more P or needs more K or needs to adjust the pH. And these are all separate activities, right? But there's this uh, amazing interdependence of everything that's uh, uh, really, I think, takes into account uh, what you're looking at there. And I think, do you, do you think that's a lot why, I mean, the standard industry, there's some misunderstandings in the Haney soil test. Wouldn't you uh, <laughs> agree with their, um, I, don't, I don't know how to say it, but there's, you know, kind of the conventional ag industry is like, well, you know, that isn't proven. You know, they want to wait another 50 years before something's <laughs> validated. Do you think there's some of that misunderstanding? Because instead of just being linear and two-dimensional, this is really a holistic uh, three-dimensional look at what's going on in the soil? For sure. And um, we were all taught, you know, since World War II on, really to view this as, an, as a reductionist uh, framework. So we want to reduce things into things that we think that we can really understand, comprehend, and control. And that's just human nature. Uh, everybody does it, you know, even in their own homes. But um, the holistic way of looking at the soil as a dynamic system, it kind of breaks your mind a little bit at first. And so it's understandable that, that it's hard to get everybody to completely jump on board. And because it is a dynamic system, we can't have a linear calibration like they would like to see or that they think that they already have um, because it, 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 it does change year to year climate to climate, um, and over time. So it's, it's hard to understand and get your mind around, especially when you've been in the industry so long and you're taught to, to learn one thing and be one way. And I mean, that's how I was taught too. fortunately, uh, or not fortunately, you know, I didn't have a farming background, so it was a little easier for me to jump out of that, that mindset, even though I was taught that way traditionally in school. 
You make a great point there, Liz. I mean, it's, it's really hard for people to change their paradigm. You know, if you're used to doing something a certain way, to look at new information, it's just easier to reject it versus trying to figure out how do I respond to the new information. And uh, uh, you're right. Uh, everyone's guilty of that. So, yeah. But tell me, uh, so now let's say um, we're really interested in what's going on out there in our soil. We, we, we take soil samples properly and we get a Haney soil test done. What are farmers changing as a result of these tests, other than applied nitrogen rates you mentioned as one? What are some of the other changes you see happening as a result of this work? Yeah, when I talk to farmers, a lot of the changes that I see is um, based on their management. So when we talk to um, a farmer that's been doing a monoculture and their microbial activity is not very high, you know, we can recommend different thing, practices they can do to increase the diversity in the soil. So, for example, if um, a farmer has been growing just corn on corn on corn, you know, increasing a uh, crop rotation, you know, increasing the variety in their rotation, uh, adding in a mixed species cover crop, we can see the effect of that after time goes by that the microbial population um, also increases in diversity. And the way we know it's in diversity is because they, the microbial population responds differently to the extractants to, they have higher respiration. They're much more active. Um, when you grow a monoculture or even when you apply the same synthetic fertilizer over and over, you're selecting for a certain population in that, in that soil. It's almost like eating only pizza every single day. You know, your body's going to think, okay, that's all I'm getting is pizza. And then you throw some broccoli in there and it's like, whoa, what am I doing? So uh, it takes a little bit to respond, but we have seen that it, it, it is helping inform some management practice decisions. So that's a, that's a great way to kind of get a verification of your outcome, right? As far as I, I, I change something and I can, I can get some quantitative feedback, you know, which is really in the regen space is, is, is hard to get, you know, when you're, what you're thinking, I'm, I'm doing this right. It's, it's principle-based farming. I, I, I'm heading in the right direction and it's more of a belief, you know, a very belief driven versus the nice part is this can kind of backfill that with, with a quantitative uh, result. So um, what are some other things you see coming down the road that um, is there value for proof of a crop or an animal is raised on a soil that had a certain soil quality index or, or, or something as a result of the test? Yeah, I, we can use the test to uh, verify on each farmer's soil, whether they are improving their soil or not, instead of a lot of times uh, standard soil testing or the way that people have been viewing regenerative practices, they might be comparing a, a row cropper on high quality corn ground in Iowa versus someone in Kansas that has a completely different climate and soil type. So um, Rick and uh, Lance Gunderson are working on ways to compare each farmer's soil against itself to determine if they're improving their soil. And then as far as how that relates to crop quality, um, you know, there are some different um, people who are looking into testing nutrient density 
there are labs that do that, but it's, it, I don't think it's real widespread right now, but it's certainly gaining in popularity. And in fact, I read a paper today um, out of Croatia, I think, where um, they have found that uh, um, there is some research that is showing you know, that healthy soils are definitely producing more nutrient-dense dense foods. And so I'm really looking forward to that, that data becoming more readily available and, and, and widely published you know, so we can reference that and, and amend our practices to create that more nutrient dense food. Right. And I, I think that's, um, you know, you got a way to quantify it. So then you got a way to know if you're improving your soil over time. And then, like you said, over time, we'll be able to, as the technology improves, overlay that uh, outcome of the food that we have produced to the healthy soil. Uh, and, and that's great. And I love what you talked about uh, benchmarking a farmer against themselves instead of against the, the perfect plot land, because not all of us uh, have David Hula's farm or not all of us have, uh, you know, flat black uh, Illinois or Iowa grounds. So, right. That's great. We're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it, not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy. From practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug. It's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different. Be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And now, back to our show. As far as the carbon part of the equation, you know, you re referenced early water extractable or organic carbon. Um, there's many, many different forms of carbon within the soil. And, you know, if you ask a person on the street, uh, carbon's bad, right? You know, but carbon's <laughs> essential for life. It's everything about uh, soil functions on it. What do you see um, as far as you know, carbon has to go through different stages of transition to become a stable uh, fraction in the soil. What is, how is our understanding improving on carbon sequestration, right? Right now, everybody, we're, we all are about putting carbon in the soil, but we can't measure it. We can't, we don't know what it's happening. We don't know at what depth. Talk to us a little bit about that whole carbon question of carbon sequestration in the soil and, and kind of get us up to speed to where we are today and where we hope to go in the future. Yeah. So right now the benchmark is doing, you know, soil organic matter or loss on ignition for total organic carbon. Mm -hmm. And that's your stable source. Mm -hmm. That doesn't tell us 100% what's actually happening in the soil. Um, and it goes back to that reductionist thinking. Yes, we want to increase that store. Everybody wants to go from 1% organic matter to 4%. And that's great because you're going to improve the structure of the soil. You're going to improve water holding capacity. You know, everybody knows that. Right. And of course, we want to sequester it out of the air. But a lot of, of that is a very dynamic situation. So this all happens through photosynthesis, of course. And you have to have a living plant on top of the soil in order to be able to sequester carbon. And so there is quite a bit of research being done about how all of that interacts with the mi microbial population, how the sugars are pumped out into the soil, what happens to them, um, how is the fungal community living and dying, and then in return, uh, contributing to that total soil organic carbon source. So I think 
right now we're, we're again looking at it from a reductionist way of thinking because that's what we have. And that's what the, the papers are published right now. And, and as far as like carbon markets go, they want to have verified data that's published and uh, readily available so that it's a stable market. But isn't that reductionist thinking too? It is, it is reductionist thinking, yes. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's hard to figure out a dynamic system. And, and a lot of this stuff is model-based um, when we're determining how much carbon is being sequestered. And I think that a, a large growing population of scientists and farmers and, and people in the industry are starting to look at what are the dynamics that we're actually modeling? What are the dynamics that we're measuring? And how can we do that better? Yeah, because you have issues with the quality of the carbon, right? Which a loss on ignition test is, you know, I, I would say you compare it to uh, burning a, you can burn a thousand tons of, or a thousand tons of cardboard, or you can burn a thousand tons of hardwood, right? Yeah. One, yeah. One's going to burn a little bit hotter than the other. And right. uh, I think, you know, that's, that's part of our issue is what, what stage is that carbon in? And I've always wondered, you know, people are getting these one to 4% organic matter increases, that additional organic matter that's been added that we're measuring on a soil test. What is the quality of that additional mm -hmm. amount? You know, and if, if we don't continue the practices to let that newer carbon, more modern carbon, um, degrade into a more stable form of carbon, um, I don't know if that's the right word to say, but uh, you know, if we don't give it the opportunity to to get into a more stable humus type form, you know, are we? Is it kind of a flash in a pan carbon, if you will? I think. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't. I don't know that that's so much an issue, especially especially if you're measuring total organic carbon in the soil. Um, that it's it's not going to degrade that quickly. And usually when you see someone's soil that has increased from 1% to 4%, unless they go out and completely destroy it by deep ripping it and, I don't know, extracting everything they possibly can out of it, um, that, that's going to be a more stable source of carbon. But, you know, we have seen soils that have 5% organic matter that don't have any nutrient cycling in play. So um, while we want to store carbon you know, we're really concerned about whether the farmer is getting everything that they can out of that carbon for their crop so that they can have a better return on investment. And unless they're getting that return on investment, it's not going to be a long-term game for the farmer. Correct. You know, all, all of our solutions have to be economical. You know, that's, that's the ultimate for sustainability. It's a great, great point. But I think, uh, what do you, how long are, into the future, do you think before we have a, a good idea of of carbon flow in the soil that that farmers can accurately, um, you know, be able to get payments and uh, for from uh, various markets that are interested? I mean, we've got, like you said today, they're kind of modeled, but do you see that improving here in the near future to where we can get a better handle on on what's going on with soil carbon? I do, um, and I know there's several people out there that are working on it. Um, you know, as we speak on how do we really assess those dynamics that are going on in the soil. And that starts with soil testing, really. And we need to be able to account for all those different fractions in the soil and how do they all interplay together. So there's been a lot of theory, but 
how do we actually test that? And I, I do know some people that are working on that right now. So I think that within the next couple of years, there's going to be a lot more information available for everybody to use. So it's, there are some opportunities now, but the opportunities for a person who's doing soil health on their own farm is going to greatly improve probably over the next three to five years, wouldn't, wouldn't you say? I, I think so. And the interest from everybody, from the people that are running the carbon markets to uh, CPGs to the consumer, I mean, it's, it's starting to ramp up. And I mean, you know, we've seen the government now is, is trying to get in this game um, or maybe not game is not the right word, but um, they're, they're getting into the field. And so the interest is definitely growing. And the more people that are interested in the more awareness that we have, the further that, that, that we can come along, as long as we all work together, as long as we all um, try to keep an open mind and, and learn from each other. What's your take on the, um additive practices versus rewarding farmers who are, so let's say you get the farmer that's doing no-till cover crops, livestock integration, been doing it for 10 years, right? The carbon markets today really don't want to pay that person for what they're doing. They want them to do even more, even though let's say they're, they're the, the perfect person that just can't do anymore. You know, they're just, mm-hmm. they're sequestering everything. And let's say they're, they're Gabe Brown. Okay. And, and he's just done everything possible. Um, he wouldn't really qualify for a carbon market, you know, where yeah. someone else who is, you know, got the moldboard plow all shined up and, you know, kind of field cultivate three times in the spring and, and those kind of things, if they'd stop that, they would get paid for doing better. What's your, what's your take on that mentality? So I understand having worked in that space before, I understand where they're coming from. Oh, sure. I know that if, um, an airline company is going to have to keep flying, right? They're going to keep emitting greenhouse gases. They want some new greenhouse gases put in the soil. And they, the way that the thinking is now is that you're going to have to change practices to do that. Um, That's the way that the models work right now. Uh, What we're ignoring in that process is that somebody like Gabe Brown or a lot of the far- regenerative farmers that we work with, they have their soils primed and ready. They're not done. They haven't stopped sequestering carbon just because they're doing these practices. Great point. So how do we account for that? And, and why aren't we accounting for that is, is my question. Um, I know just because um, one farmer has gotten up to 3% organic matter. I can look at their results in another two years and now they're up to four and a half. So why couldn't they get paid for that as well? Correct. Because, you know, even we're, we'll pick on Gabe because he's not here to defend himself, even though let's say he's at 11% there at his home farm and he's not doing anything different. Let's just say he keeps doing the same animal crop rotations for the next five years. Mm-hmm. His soil will continue to improve, even though his, his, his practices, his soil hasn't caught up to where his practices are at. And, and that's what you're saying is we need to find a, find a thing for that. Or we just need to tell Gabe, go out there with the moldboard plow, plow it under for one year so he can start over and do the additive. Oh, practice, no. Right? Let's oh. not do that. <laughs> no, let's not do that. <laughs> let's do a great carbon liberation so we can qualify for the carbon yeah. market. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, that's good. There's, there's hope for that in the future. And I think that hope will come back to the carbon monitoring that you're referring to. So that's what I was kind of 
you know, piecing together there, what, what you started with, you know, you and Rick on the, on the soil test and moving into those carbon fluxes is going to give us a better understanding for the future of it's not practice based. Everything we do in organic certification or on carbon today is practice based, right? You do X, you get Y. Okay. But you know, no-tilling in Western Kansas is different than no-tilling in, you know, uh, Indiana. And it's just, uh, it's an interesting, if we could get the actual outcomes, that'd be great. So, um, no, I wanted to visit with you, you know, a little bit on your, um, you know, some of the efforts that, that you and your team have got going on in regards to connecting farmers uh, to consumers a little more. What, uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, uh, some of the initiatives you guys are uh, going after in order to help farmers that are raising crops right get the most value they can out of them. So uh, we've started Region Mills, which is a mobile milling service that we provide for regenerative farmers. So we can go from regenerative farm to regenerative farm and mill products like cornmeal, um, grits, flour, bag it for them and then they can either direct sell those products or they can get on um, our e-commerce site and we can help them market it if they don't have the time to do it themselves and so um, we had seen some people wanted to um, do regenerative milling and then build a mill in one location and maybe have the farmers ship their products there their grain there and then have it milled and shipped out and a couple of concerns that we had was that, you know, the shipping in and of itself was going to reduce their profitability margin. And then identity preservation is a huge issue. Um, if you have a really large mill, sometimes you might have to, you know, combine the grains and everything. And what we want is that on each package of that farmer's uh, flour, we want the consumer to be able to see their story on that bag and uh, scan a QR code, go to a website, learn about their farm, learn about their practices so that we're really connecting the consumer to the farmer that is doing these practices. And in doing this, they can in increase their return on investment significantly. So that is an amazing idea um, because not every farmer is going to have enough scale to purchase and build their own mill, right? I mean, it takes uh, several tons of throughput to make this economically viable and i like the fact that it's mobile so you can you can go to everywhere and i think you were talking about having maybe you stop at one place and farmers within a certain radius can all come to that one place if there are smaller farmers involved um what uh wh what's it look like when you guys going to kick this off and hit the road so we should have the mill built out by february um with shipping and everything how how the how the shipping thing is going these yeah, days the whole, it's taken a little today. longer to get parts <laughs> but um we have we have some farmers that already have uh you know their grains cleaned and stored properly that we can probably start milling like at the end of february um maybe beginning of march and then we'll be able to roll right through the harvest season and and move around to after wheat harvest and and then through corn and and do the whole year so we're really looking forward to that. 
Well, that you, uh, this is a really big deal and, and you, you hit it really quick there, Liz, but I mean, talk, talk to us about how, how the idea come up, what all does it take to, to make this happen so far? Yeah. So the idea came up, um, really we were hearing about other people wanting to build a stationary mill and, um, got on the phone with, uh, Russell and Sarah and Russell was like, I can build a mobile mill. And so we said, okay, let's do it. Um, that's kind of how everything happens on our team. We have a great idea and then we just go for it. But uh, the process has been, you know, getting the farmers on board and, and seeing who all wants to do this. We've had a tremendous response. We have about 18 farmers that are involved right now um, that want to be a part of this. And we get calls a lot from um, farmers all the time wanting to join. So we're, we're trying to start small but we hopefully will we'll build out a couple more mills in the future where we can, we can add farmers as we go. Um, so getting everybody on board, we have, have to do lots of prep for food safety considerations. Um, Sarah's really good at that. She uh, has been looking into that and we have to do it for every single state as well as like FDA regulations. So um, as because we're mobile, there's a, a lot more uh, details and bureaucracy that we have to go to mm-hmm. through for every state. Um, some states don't have programs that it matters. Um, other ones are very, very particular about how we how we do everything. So, so um, meat processing, where if you had a USDA certification, you're you're good everywhere. Every state is individual on uh, yes. processing. Yes, every state has individual food processing regulations. So where Texas might have um, cottage laws, um, Kansas might have something completely different, or another state may just not have any regulations yet whatsoever, and it's the Wild West. Yeah, need to find those Wild West states, and then every farmer (laughs) bring your stuff there, right? (laughs) No, No. we we, we definitely want to follow all regulations where we go. And And, you know, we want it to be the highest quality, the safest products that, that we can possibly to make because there are such nutrient dense, I'm assuming grains we haven't tested um, yet, but we are going to be putting everybody through testing. Um, we have protocols as far as grain quality and grain standards and testing. We have soil testing protocols and um, to make sure that they meet regenerative standards and uh, practice standards. So we're being very thorough in our, in our paperwork and our onboarding and, getting everybody out so that the consumer does have the assurance that they're getting the best available regenerative product out there. Well, that's, that's a really, really good thing. Now, how I know a big, you know, stationary mill in, in Kansas, that's doing, you know, a million bushels a day or something or crazy amount of volume has some huge economics of scale issues. How is this for a farmer going to uh, work out is there is there enough savings in that whole supply chain to apply to a little to the extra cost of milling that this is uh, going to work out and be able to be competitive with stuff in the store or, or how how do you see that penciling out for guys? Yes, so I mean the flour is going to be more expensive than what you would buy it at Walmart for sure, mm-hmm. and you know they deserve that premium. But compared to, you know, one acre of commodity or of uh, regenerative grains done through the mill is going to, the return on investment is going to far outweigh what they can do on, you know, 50 acres of commodity corn. So um, as this 
gains steam and the consumer becomes more and more aware, the profitability is definitely there. And we're not telling the farmers to go out and plant, you know, 50 acres of uh, heritage corn so that we can mill that because we want them to start small and we don't want them to have a whole lot of risk in the process as well. Mm-hmm. So the return investment is, de- is definitely there. And we're helping to build out alternative markets for these products as well that, that go into um, spirit production and possibly breweries um, wanting to use their grains as well. So we're trying to do everything we can to make sure they have a market for what they're growing at this time. So the market, uh, the consumer is looking for these more unique type of opportunities. Uh, you mentioned heritage uh, type of varieties. I know one of the things that w- was discussed is, uh, you know, open pollinated corn, heritage open pollinated corn, probably some uh, heritage wheat varieties. How are those? How are those different? And, you know, why is the consumer interested in those? Yeah, so the, uh, we're doing all non-GMO and heritage grains. Um, the From everybody that's done like taste testing on these and the grits and everything, the heritage corns have a different flavor. Um, we know that like the alcohol produced from these um, heritage corns have a different flavor profile. And um, the consumer can taste that. Um, the yields are a little bit lower on the heritage uh, grains but also are the inputs. And so um, they make a very unique, flavorful product that the consumers are really loving. So uh, for example, like Russell has done a a 4th of July grits with three different colors of, you know, red, yellow, and blue uh, corn. And that's just something you're not going to get really in the grocery store. So the, 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 the corn is just beautiful. There's so many different colors. It's just amazing. And, and to know that, that, that these are older grains, they haven't been genetically modified and that they have such a great flavor. I think everybody's just really enjoying that right now. So how did you come across these varieties to select to, to use? I mean, wh- where do you find them? So a lot of the farmers have already been growing them, um, but they didn't have a market for them quite yet. Hmm. So, um, and then there are some people that, you know, they'll find one seed in a barn and build that out over years until they have enough to, um, to actually, you know, harvest with a combine. So it takes years and years and years sometimes to build these up. I know some people here in Texas, it's taken them 10 years to get enough to where they can actually mill flour and um, make the flour from the grains that they bought. And some of these people have gone to Jerusalem to find the grains. They have gone all over the world to find these specific grains that they can grow out and and then eventually begin to market. Wow. That's pretty fascinating. And uh, a lot of, a lot of patience and perseverance to make that work. Yes. So on some of the nutrients, have you been able to do some nutrient profile assessments on some of these heritage grains? Yeah, we haven't done any of that yet. Okay. But uh, that'll be really interesting to see uh, once you start doing that. We might need a follow-up on that to see what those differences are because, you know, we've selected for pounds over time, right, with ignorance to everything else. So uh, it'd be really interesting to see what the nutrient differences are within these plants. You know, your, your college yeah. tuition would tell you there is none. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and I mean, that's, you know, we were 
after World War II, we were we were focused on production at scale and wanting to, you know, with the Green Revolution, also wanting to to uh, feed the world by simplifying and going monoculture and yield, yield, yield was, was, and still is the main goal for most people instead of the quality of food, the quality of life um, that, that, that probably used to exist, especially when there were more diverse farms out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's fascinating. So region ag mills, you'll have to check that out and uh, keep in touch and follow what they're doing. I know um, a friend of mine is, has grown some corn that's looking to get processed by you and, and I've been visiting about doing some next year on our own farm. So it'll be fun. And uh, the best part is the bourbon or the uh, uh, the <laughs> beverages that can be made from it. So, oh, yeah, I'm we sure like our bourbon. There's some bias <laughs> involved there. After you have a few, they all taste great, right? <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, OK, I'm, I'm going to have to be honest here. Like I was not a bourbon drinker. Mm-hmm. I am a craft beer drinker. Mm-hmm. which is why I'm so excited about trying to get regenerative craft beer out there. But um, we are also um, starting a distillery and it is a farmer owned distillery that will be using these type of grains and the, the bourbon there, uh, I like to call it the bacon of bourbon because it, it you know, once you have a, a bite of bacon, you want to eat a steak after that. So once you, once you drink this bourbon, you want to have a lot more of it. I like it. The bacon of bourbon. Very good. So what other ways are you guys connecting um, uh, farmers to the consumer? I mean, this is a, that's a huge initiative there. What, what are other things that I can, I can tell the creative juices are flowing in your team? (laughs) Yeah. um, Well, like we had the big soil health event and um, really wanted to try and get a bunch of CPGs there. We did have some breweries show up and start learning about the regenerative products and had some follow-up meetings and they're, they're really excited to know about this and then to also spread it to their community. And, and so just raising awareness is, is a huge part of that. Um, I think the more that people learn about how these practices help the environment and help the water quality help, um, hopefully with the nutrient dense foods that the more excited the consumer is going to be and the more excited that, that they're going to, make the CPGs be. So we know there are already some that are, that are really active in the space, but I think as consumer awareness grows, the demand for these products is going to grow. And, and so that's something we're definitely working on is creating awareness around the, around the practices and the benefits of them. You bet. And just to help everybody who's listening today, a CPG is a consumer product, good company. Sorry. There you go. No problem. <laughs> See, you're in the space all the time. Not everybody listening <laughs> is. So just want to make sure everybody knew what that was. So no, there's a, the, the consumer wants it, right? The, the providers or the restaurants or product makers, beverage makers, they want it to differentiate themselves, right? So really the missing link is getting us farmers on board to grow it and, and make it available to, to make it happen. Only if you want to farm more profitably, right? Sure. Yeah. If you're not interested in farming more profitably, then don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. So um, talk to us about Soil Regen, your group, and uh, you, Russell and Sarah, what, what you guys are up to, what you're all about, what, what's your vision for the future? Yeah. So we um, work with uh, farmers. We do our own events. We help um, watersheds put on events and educational awareness. 
Um, we work with companies that want to get the word out and um, put together events. But the, the unique thing is um, a lot of times these events happen. Farmers will come, they'll get all excited about it, and then they go home and they don't have any support. And so we have a, a really good group of farmer consultants that we work with. And every single one of us is committed to following up and making sure that each person that came to that event that wants more knowledge or wants more information has the support that they, they need. So we're planning on follow-up webinars, field days. We'd like to help farmers get connected with other farmers in their area so that they can have peer groups. And we're building out the infrastructure so that everybody works together to gain the knowledge. And we met with a couple people this week, different organizations that are really interested in helping with that process as well. Um, we, we know through all of our work over the years that, you know, not one group can do this alone. Not one person can do this alone. And it really takes a village and, it, and you know, it's kind of like raising a baby. So it's going to take the whole community to get together to help every single person along this process so nobody gets left behind if they're interested in, in making the changes. Yeah, that's excellent. And, you know, that's one of the things we try to do too is, is it's one thing to give the person the idea, but it's another thing to, to help them along the, you know, every decision process of, okay, how are we going to do it? What tools does it take? What operational management does it take? How does the accounting change? How does the, you know, profit center change? What does a budget look like? And, what are other things we need to look at to, to make sure that it works versus just, you know, a lot of things are, you can learn a lot on YouTube, but the problem with the, the YouTube is, is that uh, there, if it doesn't work out for you, their <laughs> video still exists out there. Right. But right. You know, a personal relationship with somebody who's accountable to you, uh, then that changes your prospects for success. So that's sure. awesome. Um, just want to take a minute and ask anything else uh, that you'd like for us to have uh, brought up today or have talked about today? Well, I just hope that everybody stays tuned and, and uh, we just sent out a survey to follow up from our big soil health event uh-huh. and really trying to ask the people that attended um, what they want for the future, uh, what kind of programs and events that they, they want to see, uh, how involved they want to be. Do they, you know, what kind of workshops they want, because we really want to cater um, our further educational services to meet the needs of people. So we really need to hear back. So even if somebody wasn't there, um, we, we would love to get everybody's opinion on how we can best help serve them. Because as a team, we just, we want to build out the best and most effective programs. And if we don't get feedback from, you know, the participants and the farmers and the people within the community that need help, um, you know, we won't be able to shape the programs the best that we possibly can. Yeah, very good. Very good. No, it, the soil health uh, movement is, is certainly underway and, um, you know, quantifying what's going on with the test and, and the future of what's possible with carbon are, are two big components. I love how you're helping farmers connect to a market, uh, get more value for what they are doing on their own ground, get, try to extract some of that value of what they've been doing for years with soil health and uh, I, I think that's pretty exciting and understanding that it's a, it's a paradigm shift that needs to happen in a person's mind, not only how you look at a soil test, but how you approach farming and, and to basically do principled farming is, uh, is uh, 
it's a challenge. So I'm sure thank you, Liz, for what all you're doing and your team are doing to uh, make it happen. Thank you. It's so exciting to see and hear the passion that folks like Liz have for helping growers pivot their management and find solutions that work on their farms and ranches. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on the links to follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.